Welcome to the Feminist Spatial Practice Podcast, a podcast about feminist theory and architecture. My name is Afaina Dion, and this episode we are speaking with Leslie Kern. Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much uh, for, uh, well, being a guest on the Feminist Spatial Practice Podcast. It's part of uh, this uh, feminist book club I'm doing at the Amsterdam Architecture Center. And we have read your book, actually the first book that we read, uh, The Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World. Through these podcasts, I actually wanted to kind of uh, meet the writers and explore with you also well, what's behind these publications uh, and also your thoughts kind of on how these publications, uh, your, your publication is uh, helpful for us as uh, practitioners of architecture. I would just like to ask you as a first question, if you could introduce yourself. Uh, I always hate these podcasts where it's like red. Oh, this is Leslie, blah, blah, blah. And I think you could <laughs> probably introduce yourself way better. Uh, so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Leslie Kern, and I'm a professor of geography and environment at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada, which is a small town on the East Coast. I grew up in a big city, Toronto, and that's partly what inspired me to think about writing a book about gender and cities. Thank you. So, uh, The Feminist City, why did you write this publication? I was interested in offering a way for people to look around them at the city that they live in, travel to, work in, move through, and to try to get them to not take it for granted, right? To not just see the built environment around them as something that has always been there and will always be there, but to see it as kind of a, a dynamic environment. And that's is something that is part of society, right? That is mm. actually shaping the way that we live. So to see the city as kind of an active participant in our everyday lives and to ask mm. questions about it, you know, why is it set up this way? Who designed it? Who is included? Who's excluded? What changes could be made? Yeah, I think that's really clear from, from your book. I mean, what I really liked is, well, many things, of course, but I also really like kind of your personal reflections in the book. Um, and, and basically you're using this intersectional feminist framework to kind of, you know, place yourself within this environment and also analyze like, well, what effect you being there can have kind of on this whole spatial situation and other people with whom you cohabit in there. Could you maybe talk a little bit more on this, kind of using this intersectional framework? Absolutely. I wanted to follow in what I think of as a very long tradition of starting from where you are. So starting mm. a little bit with yourself, uh, starting with experience, starting with embodied experience of the city and generating the sort of questions that arise out of being a person having an identity or having a body that doesn't seem to quite fit in the environment. Mm. And that starts to generate what, what I think of as feminist questions about space. But it's not enough to just stop there because, of course, my experience is not universal. I embody a lot of privileges that are very salient in the context in which mm. I live and, and where I grew up. 
So an intersectional framework pushes me and hopefully the reader to think how both the city that we have and the city that we might imagine, how it's going to impact different groups in different ways based on where they are socially located in terms of factors like class and race, age, Mm. sexuality, ability, and of course, gender. Yeah, it's very nice. And also, I I think you bring to the four kind of older ideas from, you know, taking the margin as the center. Um, I also really liked how you introduce a lot of female architects that I never heard about. Uh, Other women who've been practicing within, you know, the spatial context, maybe not as architects, but definitely within kind of spatial context and the city. And I mean, in general, like, who would you say, whose shoulders do you stand on in terms of, you know, your work and your writing? I have always been inspired by people like Dolores Hayden, for example, who was a feminist Mm -hmm. architect, but is perhaps more well known for the critiques that she advanced of uh, things like the suburbs in North America and for the kind of gender roles that literally got cemented into the design of the suburban home, the suburban neighborhood and its division from the city. So, uh, and she has also done so much work kind of uncovering this long history that you alluded to of women who, uh, some of whom were architects, but many of whom were just uh, sort of utopian visionaries, part of early women's movements that saw spaces like the home in the city as contributing to women's exploitation and women's Uh, inequality in society. And they thought that for women to be equal, not only do they need equal rights under the law, but we also need kind of a spatial revolution. But Mm. I have to say in a more contemporary context, the shoulders that I stand on, I think of in terms of the activist movements that have inspired me over time. So feminist activist movements like Take Back the Night in cities, the Pride movement, and more recently, Black Lives Matter, all of which I think are transformative movements that really offer up new visions for what city life could be. To me, this book speaks in a way, it's not universal what you describe, but so much is so recognizable as a woman kind of navigating the city. And I was just curious, of course, you write it from a very specific, um, you know, urban context, but what do you feel applies to kind of everywhere for women? Well, I think there's very few major cities that we could point to that we would say historically had women placed in major roles in their design. (laughs) And Mm, and certainly not from the beginning and all the way through the 20th century, there's been relatively few uh, highly influential women mayors, city planners, architects, and so on. So just, again, without wanting to say this is every single place in the world, I think that it would actually be quite hard to find to find cities that have been designed with women or with gender equity at the forefront. Things are shifting. Yeah. There are improvements in different places. But I, I think it's probably fair to say that most places have been designed from a kind of standard male point of view that has not done a great job of taking into account how other factors, including gender, but, you know, also questions of of age and sexuality and race, these things have been seen kind of as afterthoughts that we figure out after we create our perfect master plan for how the city should (laughs) ideally function. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, and and I mean, you're you're uh, an urban geographer, right? Yes. So, I mean, my question is like, for instance, the 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 theory and the thinking in in, in this in your book is not written especially for architects, but what kind of what kind of values or concepts do you think are valuable for us as architects? Of course, we found many <laughs> uh, going through your book, but I'm just curious what you feel um Mm. should be something that we should incorporate in our thinking. Well, earlier you mentioned one of the concepts that I try to bring up in the book, which is the idea of bringing the margin to the center. And I suspect mm. that in architecture and planning, there is uh, either an explicit or maybe sometimes an implicit notion of who the user will be. And that yeah. might often default to a kind of almost mythical, like typical person that we think is somehow represents a majority of people. And the idea that you would be designing for women or parents or children or disabled people gives the idea that you're designing for just a niche group or a minority. And why would you design something that's just for a minority? Yeah. But I think that if we take all of those so-called minority groups together, they are yeah. actually the majority. So this perfect sort of sure. user, this able-bodied, you know, heterosexual, cisgendered, usually male, typical user, he might actually be the minority. He might be the niche. Yeah, sure. So if you could imagine a more broader sense of who the user is and, and thinking about, you know, how will this space serve more vulnerable people? How will it mm. advance equity in society? Then you you create a space that I think works more broadly for people, like greater accessibility, for example, works for everyone. It doesn't take anything away from somebody. Nobody or probably very few people are out there saying, I have a right to climb stairs instead of saying, <laughs> yeah. oh, hey, elevators, ramps, other forms of accessibility would be really great. So yeah. that's one thing that I would certainly emphasize. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's really a, such a great point you know and and even that is sometimes hard to understand because then it like you say it feels like but you're designing for this extreme niche you know but at the same time yeah if it works for that that particular niche then that is maybe universal because it would actually work for everyone for everyone you know so I really feel that we have to let go of that ideal of the universal body or universal person you know that we kind of love in in our modernist architecture yes but, um, and, and I think yeah. sometimes that idea of that universal person in a way it's it's kind of paradoxical but it's almost like it's detached from a real human body because sometimes we find spaces that don't really seem designed to uh, serve the needs that human bodies have just as organisms mm. <laughs> as as animals yeah, that yeah. needs to go to the bathroom or to have shelter and shade or access to water or comfortable places to sit. These things often seem left out of design. And we think we're actual humans imagined in this space. So so that would be another principle. Like think about, you know, the actual embodied human beings and perhaps um, non-human companions as well that yeah. might be using these spaces. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very, very funny. So also in your field, like uh, in urban geography, how was your book received, for instance? I think it's been received well in the sense that 
people have found it to be like an effective communication tool for some of the ideas mm. that as human geographers, we come to, to take a little bit for granted. The idea, for example, that societies create and generate spaces that reflect their values and norms. And then the inverse of that, which is that the spaces that we create also affect society. But that's not necessarily yeah. an intuitive understanding that an, you know, an average person might have. It's something that we mm. you know, teach in geography and that we, a concept that we use in our research. And I think people have found the book useful for kind of making that clear to a wider audience. I know people have been using it in the classroom and have found it, you know, an effective tool for engaging students in some of these questions about, you know, power and space and why design matters. So in, yeah. in that sense, I think it's, it's kind of doing what I, what I hoped it would do within, within the field. Yeah, I think I feel like reading the book, it also to us, I mean, it was a group of, well, basically all architects, Um, it also helped us kind of to think about vocabulary, um, you know, and kind of like, yeah, what do we have to change even in the way we speak and the words that we use or the concepts that we put forth uh, so, so that we can design in a different way? You know, like I also felt like the book gives us, um, well, new thoughts, new vocabulary. Um And what, what would be like a concept or a word that you would give to us to add to our daily practice? One of the, I'm not sure what the word is that, that captures this, but one of the things that I mm. think is useful is a kind of breaking out of binaries or binary thinking. So the yeah. idea that designs or design elements are either masculine or feminine, for example, mm. or that spaces are either private or public. And trying to blur those boundaries a little bit. So maybe blurring boundaries or blurring binaries would be a word to think about to really challenge what is taken for granted. Why do we assume that, you know, this space is purely private and this one is purely public? Why do we have sort of perhaps somewhat outdated notions of what counts as a masculine design and what's feminine and mm -hmm. how do these kind of work to reinforce a societal sense of, of gender binaries and other sorts of divisions. So yeah, blurring, blurring your binaries and trying to think outside of those dualistic little boxes. Yeah, I like that. I mean, the city is also a, a really messy place, you know, like it's also very weird to kind of, <laughs> <laughs> and everything has to be this or that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, so we're going to break, break out of those. And I, I mean, like that. planning and architecture, I think there's a certain impulse to you want to kind of control that messiness to a certain extent, mm. right? You want to bring some yeah, order sure. to the yeah, chaos of yeah. the world. And, and some of that is totally necessary, but at a certain point, there also has to be a realization, of course, that people, people are messy and complicated. They're not going to use your spaces in the exact way that you intended. And that's no. actually a really cool thing, right? That it's, yeah. um, the city is co-created both by the people who, literally build buildings and by the people who use them every day. Yeah, that's, I mean, for sure. I, I remember when my first building was done, it was like a old uh, train station and I made it into like a new place. And I remember that I, I was, I mean, I love people and I always want to make buildings for people and with people. But I do remember that when it was done, I kind of felt like, okay, I'm not going to come here for a year or a year or two because, you know, like you kind of have to give away <laughs> your baby as mm -hmm. well and say like, okay, you can mess it up and 
painted pink on the inside and I, I, I'll just have to accept that. <laughs> um, yes. So yeah, yes. I, I kind of recognize that feeling. But um, yeah, so uh, I think m- maybe kind of a last question or maybe not the last, but you know, we've been kind of exploring also what a feminist spatial practice could be. And of course, spatial practice is, is is very wide. Like it's not only for architects, as you also show in your book. But what would be, what do you think are some core values um, that should be part of a, a feminist spatial practice? Well, one thing that has really perhaps risen to the top, especially throughout this pandemic period where we have really seen kind of a crisis around care work and care labor, mm-hmm. both the unpaid version that typically happens kind of in and around the home and both and the paid, usually underpaid care labor that happens in, you know, seniors, residences and hospitals and schools and so on. So for me, a feminist spatial practice has to be one that considers this care labor, again, not as an afterthought that comes after this thing that we call the economy, right, the public sort of waged I don't know, this like amorphous thing that we've all been told, oh, you better protect (laughs) this thing. Uh, But you can't do that without the care labor that literally keeps us clean and fed and safe and cared for. So a feminist spatial practice is one that recognizes that that labor is valuable, that it should be shared, and that we can come up with different spatial solutions or if not solutions and spatial improvements that allow us to kind of collectivize that labor to really Mm. value it and to hopefully make sure that we don't find ourselves back in this kind of crisis uh, when the next crisis hits. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's such a strong point, you know, because I don't know, labor is such a thing, I think, in architecture that we never acknowledge. You know, like we act like it's invisible to us. It's not invisible, but but I think lots of times architects refuse to kind of see it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if we talk about kind of the labor that goes into making a building, whether it's like <laughs> poorly paid interns, poorly paid uh, people constructing the buildings. Um, but yeah, I totally agree also with care work. It's something that we do not value in a way and that's why we don't see it and don't design for it in a proper way yes so yeah i think that's a great thing (laughs) that we should definitely add great so thank you so much i mean i i realize that of course you just i mean put this book out and kind of shared it with us but um i mean looking into the future what's coming is there any more uh, books coming out. Can you lift? Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit. Well, I'm working on a, a next book that is again meant for a wide audience, and this one is about mm. gentrification, which is one of the topics yes. that I study <laughs> as a geographer. So it's uh, kind of designed as a uh, a guide for helping you know, again, everyday people to understand this phenomenon that they've probably heard about, they're probably noticing maybe in their own neighborhoods, they know a little bit about it. They're, you know, sometimes not sure if it's good or bad and how to make sense of it. So the book kind of takes us through, you know, the kind of different 
stories or ways that we have of understanding gentrification and tries to break them down. And of course, to offer a kind of feminist intersectional critique of gentrification. Wow. I mean, I can't wait to read that. I think, yeah, gentrification is has such an impact on all our lives, but also as uh, practitioners. Um, and I also feel like definitely so often, you know, we talk about it, but it's so hard to kind of dissect your role in it. You know, yes. it's like, I hear people say, yeah, but I mean, then I can't buy that five euro latte that's now in my neighborhood. That's it. Is that destroying my neighborhood? But it's so good that coffee. I mean, this is really banal, but, you know, like it's it's it feels like it's uh, so inescapable in a way. Um, so, yeah, it would be great. Yes, those are of, the kind of questions yeah. that I dig into the sort of why can't we have nice things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, what is that all about? Yeah. Right. It's like so comfortable and great and so terrible and horrible at the same time. It's uh, it's it's really confusing. It is. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. We're looking forward to your next book. And thank you for uh, well sharing your thoughts with me. Um, we enjoyed reading your book and we'll, um, well, hopefully get back to you uh, when your new book is out. That would be fantastic. Thank you for having me and for featuring my book with your amazing uh, book club. Thank you for listening to the Spatial Practice Podcast. This podcast is part of the Architect in Residence program at the Amsterdam Architecture Center, ARCOM.